Section 5 of Sunbeams by George W. Peck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Red-Headed Boy Angel A fifteen-year-old boy living in an interior town in this state, who has heard that the son was going to make a specialty of advising and chaperoning boys that are growing up that come in the son's jurisdiction, is responsible for this correspondence. He writes a letter from his home as follows. My dear Governor, I want to get up a list of our citizens who will take your paper and deliver it to them every Saturday, but my stepfather, who is intermittently pious, praying one day and swearing the next, says he don't want any red-headed newsboy around him and if he catches me selling papers, he will warm my jacket. My mother, who was a meek little woman, who never would have allowed my stepfather, if I had been as old as I am now, I can tell you, while she wants me to earn something towards buying a jacket for my stepfather to warm, as I have done for over six years, thinks I had better give up selling papers rather than have any trouble with him. It makes me sick to be treated so, I am not very large, my hair is red as a circus poster, and my skin is freckled, and my mother's husband makes fun of my looks and wants me to study for the ministry, so sometimes I feel as though I would make a better pirate or train robber if I stay here much longer. My stepfather whipped me last summer with a belt that had a big nickel buckle on it till I fainted because I went in swimming without his consent though my mother told me I could go in swimming. Then he made me go without my supper, and insisted that I sing I Want to Be an Angel until bedtime. I wish you would advise me what to do, and whether to run away or stay here and protect my mother. He kicked mother the other day because the strawberry shortcake was not light enough, and he was to blame because he bought some cheap baking powder at auction that Ma said wouldn't raise a blister. In your bad boy experience, you must have had something like me. Is there anything that you know of that will make red hair turn black and that will take freckles off a fellow's face? There are some freckles on me as big as a three-cent piece, and they are yellow and bilious-looking. I have always looked forward to having a nice black mustache, but the hairs are beginning to come in sight on my top lip and they are as red as a fox's tail. Is there any cure for a red mustache? Please write me. Yours truly, just a red-headed boy. Answer. My dear kid, it is not my intention to set up an office to regulate the family affairs of all who read the sun, but your letter interests me deeply, and I can see that in your present state of indignation you may do something you will be sorry for so I will write you a few verses. The Bible says, Honor thy father and thy mother. If there is anything in the good book that advises a boy to honor a stepfather who trounces him without cause with a strap with an iron buckle on it, a man who is apparently a heartless hypocrite, I have not found the chapter in verse, though I will retain the pastor of my church to look up the law on the subject. You had better advise with your mother and some good men that you know as to whether you should become a newsboy. 
and if they all think you can make a few dollars honestly by selling papers on Saturday and not interfere with your studies at school, you just do it, and if that old hypocrite attempts to molest you, wire me, and I will come out there on the first train and scare the daylights out of him. I will have him arrested for treason, my boy, for suppressing a newspaper, and depriving the people and the press of liberty. Oh, the boys won't do a thing to that old wretch. Now, my boy, don't you worry about being red-headed. No boy is red-headed from choice, and it is very discouraging to be the only red-headed freckled boy in a school. The girls giggle at him and are afraid to get near him for fear of spontaneous combustion. And at a party, the red-headed boy often can't get a partner, while the black-haired boys have partners to burn. But don't worry, my boy. You will feel as though the whole world is against you, and you will at times want to go off somewhere and die. Don't do it. When the rest are having fun and neglecting studies, you pitch right in and learn all there is in the books. By and by, the other boys will be asking you to help them in their studies, to keep them from failing to get there. Help them cheerfully, and after a while, the boys will swear by you and say you have got more in that old red head and under those freckles than all of them. Why, some of those pretty boys will be trying to catch freckles of you, and some day a lock of that red hair will be as precious to some good girl as it is now to your mother. You will make money while the smart alecks are spending all they can get, and they will want to borrow of you. Lend them a little, but insist that they pay it when due. If you are the banker of the boys in school, you may be the banker of the town when you grow up. Keep your red hair and your freckles, for some day you will be proud of them. Learn to be an all-around boy. Don't be a preacher now, but when you get old enough to know what you are best fitted for, be a preacher, if that is in your line, and be a good one. If you have learned to play football and all the games, and to box so you are not afraid to put up your hands with anybody of your weight, it won't be in your way if you become a preacher. Last summer I saw a little preacher on a bicycle run into by a bruiser who laughed at the little preacher and asked him what he was going to do about it. The little preacher took off his sweater and rolled up his shirt sleeves, and when the bruiser came for him and attempted to land on the point of his jaw, the little preacher ducked and gave the bruiser one under the ear that laid him cold, and then he fanned the bruiser till he came to his senses and asked him if he would like to have another round. The bruiser felt of the place where he thought his ear came off, and when he found it was still on the side of his head, he said, No, thank you. I don't want to fight a bantam. I am a heavyweight. And he apologized and went away, and I thought the minister uttered a silent prayer, though he was laughing all the time. The prettiest prayer I have heard in a year was by a young minister, chaplain of a regiment, who two years ago I saw taken off the football field at Madison, senseless, from getting jumped on in the mud by fifteen players. So, my boy, you go on studying, and some day a general may be looking up and down the line for a man to lead a dangerous expedition, and he may pick out a red-headed fellow about your build, and if you do as well as that red-headed Kansas colonel, the world will be talking about you the next day, 
and that confounded stepfather of yours will take up all the room at the depot when you come home and tell everybody, that's my boy. Then I want you to take off your army belt with the big brass buckle, take your stepfather across your knee, and give it to him good and plenty, and we will elect you United States Senator. So long, you red-headed kid. Interrupted Wedding Trip Some people have an idea that after men get along in years and assume grave responsibilities, that they forget the days when they were boys and never play any more jokes on their friends. But it is a great mistake. No man gets so high up in the business or professional world or so engrossed in the affairs of life, if he has ever been a boy with a boy's ideas of fun, that he forgets to look for chances to play jokes on his friends. This idea was beautifully illustrated a year or so ago, when a prominent hotel man of Chicago got married. He had more friends than anybody in Chicago, and when it was noised around that he had been captured by a pair of bright eyes, he who was considered immune against any fever that love brings, was the subject of many congratulations. But there were consultations among his friends as to how to make life a burden to him on his wedding trip. The friends did not resort to the old custom of trimming his trunk with white ribbons and advertising the fact to the world that he was married. They had a deeper scheme. Mr. Charles, the bridegroom, who was a friend of Mr. Pinkerton, the detective, was offered a squad of private detectives to go with him on his bridal tour, and the captain of a local military company proffered his company as an escort to Denver, while the leader of a band tendered the services of his entire aggregation, including a drum major, free of charge. Mr. Charles declined all these kindly offers with politeness, but there was an offer that he accepted, his great sorrow. A friend who was general manager of a railroad west of Omaha tendered his private car to the bridegroom to be at his disposal from Omaha to Denver, up into the mountains, and return. That was too good a thing for a bridegroom to decline, and Mr. Charles bit like a bass. The marriage took place, and the bridal party got to Omaha by the ordinary cars and after shaking the rice out of their clothing all across the states of Illinois and Iowa, the happy couple arrived at Omaha. They put in the day looking at the sights and occasionally dropping more rice on the streets, which seemed never to entirely leave them. While on the principal street of Omaha, a shower came up, and Mr. Charles opened the new umbrella, and about a quart of rice which had been hidden there fell upon the new bonnet of the bride and all over the sidewalk. Mr. Charles was not a profane man, but when such things kept occurring after he was five hundred miles away from his friends, he felt that the rice planting was being overdone. Telling of it afterward, he said he got to be afraid to put his hands in his pockets, for he always found rice there. A small hole in his overcoat pocket allowed a stream of rice to pour on the ground wherever he traveled, and in a street car, where he sat, the floor became covered to the depth of an inch. But at evening the bride and groom entered the car so kindly donated by the general manager, 
met the porter, who was also the cook, and who exhibited his teeth in smiles, retired in the stateroom of the car and prepared to sleep. Mr. Charles says now that it is over, that he wouldn't go through another such night for a million dollars. First the car was taken out to the stockyards and placed between stock trains, where pigs squealed for hours and cattle bellowed until the bridegroom was frantic. But finally the car was hitched onto a train and started west. Every engineer seemed to have orders to blow the whistle whenever passing the special car, and there was scarcely a minute that the engine hauling the train on which was the private car did not sound for a crossing or something. It is perhaps better to let Mr. Charles tell the balance of the story himself. He returned to Chicago after an absence of ten days, a little pale, and with a nervous look, which is said always to be the case with a returned bridegroom. He did not say much about his trip till he met his late bosom friend, Mr. Pinkerton. After a few words to break the ice, Mr. Pinkerton said, Charles, how did you enjoy the special car that the old man furnished you? Great way to travel, isn't it? Don't ever mention special car to me, said Mr. Charles, as he got up and walked the floor, and I will bet you that general manager will never cross my path again. I shall kill him on sight. And Mr. Charles took a revolver from a drawer in his desk and began to turn the cylinder. What was wrong? asked Mr. Pinkerton, with a laugh that spread all over his face. Now don't you ever breathe a word of this, said Mr. Charles, but I have got plenty. We hadn't more than got into the car at Omaha before a switch engine jerked it out to the packing houses, and of all the noises and smells I ever heard and smelled, that beat all. Ten thousand squealing hogs and bellowing cattle and men punching cattle with sharp sticks and swearing, and a perfect hell upon earth. Oh, you must have dreamed it, said the friend. You were nervous from overwork before you left home, and the reaction and the peace and quiet of a wedding trip were too much for you. Oh, go on, said the bridegroom. I believe you helped put up the job yourself. But it was quiet enough later. After we got out into Nebraska, more than seven pounds of rice came down through the ventilator on my bed. The bells in the car had been arranged with some kind of clockwork, and they rang every seven minutes, and the porter would come to the door and ask what he could do for me. I never slept a wink till after daylight, and when I woke up the car was still, and I dressed and looked out the window, and we were on the prairie with not a house in sight. I tried to call the porter, but he wouldn't port where the scent. I went out on the platform in my pajamas and found the car was on a side track, no train in sight, and the wind blowing my pajamas four ways for Sunday. I wondered what we had been sidetracked for and started to go in and find the porter, but the door locked itself with me out on the platform. Nice position for a bridegroom, wasn't it, on a chilly morning? I pounded on the door, but no porter, and finally a still small voice asked who was there, and on giving the grand hailing sign of distress and the quarterly password, I was permitted to enter. Well, I dressed and went out, and it was the bleakest-looking country for a honeymoon that I ever saw. I hunted the car through for the porter, 
and concluded that my private car had got a hot box in the night, and the train had left it sidetracked and took the porter on to Denver. Oh, I was a happy bridegroom. Finally, I saw a black spot on the prairie, and I watched it, and finally it came nearer, and I found it was the porter. He said he had been chasing a jackrabbit. I told him never mind rabbits, but hustle around and get breakfast. He said that was what he was chasing the jackrabbit for, for breakfast. He said there was no food in the car. I told him the car was to have been stocked with provisions by the manager. He said all there was to eat was rice, about a bushel, but no fire and no coal, and we would have to eat the rice dry. Say, just imagine a bridal party that has seen nothing but rice for two days until the rattle of rice on the pavement makes them sick trying to make a breakfast of dry rice. I asked the porter if there was nothing else to eat on the car, and he said some hunters had the car a week before, and they left some crackers, and I told him to fetch them out. What do you think he brought out for us? Some of these dog biscuits. Well... I came near dying right there. A wedding breakfast of dog biscuit and dry rice. I asked him if there was no wine or water on board. He said there was no wine, but there was a bottle of Hyundai water. You gods! Hyundai water on an empty stomach? Finally, I asked the porter how he came to be sidetracked, and he said the conductor told him he had orders from the train dispatcher to sidetrack the car at the quietest place in Nebraska, as the occupants wanted to enjoy a quiet life far away from the maddening throng. Well, I could see it was a put-up job, and I was going to stand the rays all night, so I ordered the porter to set the table with the rice, the dog biscuit, and the Hyundai water, and I was going to eat if it killed me as my wife had a little flask of brandy for sickness, when we heard a whistle blow, and presently a train stopped and coupled on to our car and whirled us away toward Denver, and they brought us a fine breakfast from the dining car, and my wife never knew the worry and anxiety I had enjoyed talking with that porter. We got to Denver all right and shook that car, and I am now going to devote the balance of my life getting even with that general manager and Mr. Charles felt for his revolver. "'How did you explain to your wife about being on the sidetrack on the prairie so long?' asked Mr. Pinkerton. "'Oh, I just lied,' said Mr. Charles. "'I said the rest of the train had gone through a bridge, and our car was the only one that was saved, and I thought we were in big luck to be alive. But just you wait,' and Mr. Charles took down a large duck gun, and began to try some buckshot cartridges in it, and he had a wicked look in his mild blue eye. End of section 5 Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina